invite you to turn your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 13. Hebrews chapter 13, we've made it to the last chapter uh, of this book. Hebrews 13. Uh, in this final chapter of Hebrews, the author formally concludes in a very practical call to action. In Hebrews, there's been so much theology for us. It's, it's quite a deep, complex book. One might wonder, as they turn to Hebrews chapter 13 and start reading through this practical section, if they started into a new epistle. Um, we are not, however, yet into the epistle of James, but I think that the author of Hebrews has a very specific vision of what the Christian life should look like, and he communicates that to those who would be new covenant followers of Jesus Christ. During this time of COVID, we've had a lot of time to think, maybe too much, but a lot of time to think about our lives and our involvement in the church of Jesus Christ. Perhaps you've wondered, is the way that I was living before being forced into quarantine the most effective way to obey and to enjoy uh, the Christian experience? Or perhaps you wonder during this time, or perhaps even at other times, uh, is the way I imagine or practice church the way it really should be as a follower of Jesus Christ? I think the rest and isolation actually affords us a valuable time to access the nature of our commitment to Jesus Christ or to assess it. And I think this text from the author of Hebrews uh, is a presentation on what I would call the essential marks of the community who follows Jesus Christ. You see, there are areas in our Christian life and experience where we should invest concentrated or particular energy as we live out the Christian life. And I'm convinced that if our church would obey the first six verses of Hebrews chapter 13, that we would see an amazing revolution in our church and we would see a great impact in our surrounding communities. And so if you've been pondering some of these bigger questions about your own life or your involvement in church, I think this text will be especially helpful for you. If we obey these verses, lives will be dramatically impacted for the glory of God. So the title of my sermon today, and I, that's because, you know, Normally I stink at titles. This might not be the best one, but here's the title. Six verses that can change our church and impact the world. Six verses that can change our church and impact the world. Look in your Bibles at Hebrews 13, verse 1. The author says, Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember those who are in prison as those in prison with them and those who are mistreated since you also are in the body. Let marriage be held in honor among all. Let the marriage bed be undefiled for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, 
The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Let's pray together. Father, as we come to your word today, consider it afresh and anew. And consider this practical section from the author of Hebrews about what the Christian life and experience should look like. I pray that you would help me to communicate this clearly, not my own vision or plan, but your vision, your plan for a believer and for a church. And Father, I pray that you would do something supernatural as I communicate this today. I pray that you would use your word through the power of your Holy Spirit to change us, to strengthen us. Lord, if we have some sort of traditional experience that somehow forbids the Spirit from working, I pray that we would remove it. Lord, if we... uh, formally we're obeying in ways that we've abandoned, I pray that you would show that to us as well. Lord, help us to consider what the author says about the Christian life. And I pray that we would all honestly evaluate our own lives and our families. In Jesus' name, amen. So we come to these first six verses. We uh, come and run into eight imperatives or commands. I think that the way that the author arranges uh, these personal commands uh, is important. And so I want to point that out to you uh, as we come here. Uh, These eight commands or challenges come in pairs, groups of two, and each one has a motivation. Let me just show you this in your Bible. That way you'll understand what the author, how he's kind of structured his thinking, and this text will make sense to you. So look in your Bible at verse 1. In verses 1 and 2, you've got two commands paired together. He starts out with command number one, let brotherly love continue. To that he adds in verse two, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. Okay, so both of these commands have to do with love and to them he attaches a motivation. He does this with every one of the groups of two. The motivation in verse two is for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. He wants us to take love seriously, so he gives us that motive. We'll talk more about it in a little bit. In verse 3, there are two commands found in that verse. Remember those who are in prison. And then later on, the second command, and remember those who are mistreated. And then he gives a motive. I've circled these motives in your Bible. This is why you should remember people like this. Since you also are in the body. In verse 4, he gives two commands. They're paired together. Let marriage be held in honor. That's command number one. And then command number two, let the marriage bed be undefiled. And then he gives a motive for God will judge. He gives this motivation or reason why you should pay attention to these commands. In verses five and six, he gives two commands there, two final commands. He says, keep your life free from the love of money. He adds to that first command, this one, be content with what you have, and then he gives a motivation for he has said. Okay, so we're going to walk through this text in a way, I think, that honors the way the author organized it. I've got four points with you today. They focus on those four sets of commands. The first one is in verses 1 and 2. And the command stated, uh, the author's vision for the church or for followers of Jesus Christ is number one, that we would love brother and stranger. Look again in verse one. He says, let brotherly love continue. 
Do not re- re- neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unaware. Here, the first two imperatives both have to do with love. He says, first, we, we should persist in brotherly love. This is the Greek term Philadelphia. That is, what he's saying here is that we must be committed to demonstrate mutual love, love directed back and forth to each other in the church of Jesus Christ. The noun that occurs here could literally be translated love brothers. And so as you strive to live the Christian life during COVID and beyond, hopefully, once we get there, you must particularly invest in brotherly love. You must give yourself to practical displays of love to your brothers and sisters in Christ. For you see, God has placed your brothers and sisters in the body of Christ, and you must give yourself to love one another. Perhaps you say, I don't really like, if I'm honest, I don't really like the people that God surrounded me with in the body of Christ. I've got a profound pastoral word for you in answer to that. My profound pastoral word is, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if you like them or not. You must love your brother, brothers and sisters in Christ. You must give yourself to this. Perhaps as well, COVID has made it difficult for you because you were right in the middle of a church transition. I understand how difficult that would be. I've, I've met many people are coming in from different areas and that provides unique challenges to you, uh, you know, as you live the Christian life. And this one here is just really tough, right? Let brotherly love continue. I don't know exactly what that looks like for you, but this is a challenge and command to the church of Jesus Christ. Uh, Let brotherly love continue. The author expands upon this command in verse two when he gives the next command. You might not see this initially in your English Bibles, but look at this next command. He says, show hospitality to strangers. This phrase comes from one word in the original. Again, it's a compound noun, and it could be translated love strangers. Love strangers. So whether these strangers are believers or unbelievers, love people you don't know. I would translate this command in the following way. Do not neglect to love strangers. So as we're kind of reading through this text, what do we find? We find these two challenges, love of brother and love of stranger. What's interesting to me is that in the original, in in the Greek, these have the same exact root. Brotherly love is Philadelphia. Strangerly love is Philazenia. Philazenia. You can hear the word Phil at the beginning of both of those words. And so the original setting here, loving strangers, I think would often refer to helping to travelers who were lodging. Uh, or travelers who, who, were, who were going around and, and it would be offering lodging or something to them for food or drink. I think this loving strangers involved making a place for strangers in one's own place. And so the author's point here is that we must willingly make room among our stuff for brothers and sisters and strangers. So if I take the challenge of the first two words, I say you could state it concisely. It's love, brother, love, stranger. 
Okay, so that's the point he's making. Now, let me just draw a few applications for us. We, we got that, right? Love brother, love stranger. You awake out there, you got that? Got verses one, two, love brother, love stranger. Just a few applications for you to consider. One, I was thinking about the way we greet guests when they come uh, to Colonial Baptist Church. Thinking about the, the opportunity we have to demonstrate kindness to guests at our gathering. Now, during COVID-19, our gatherings are a bit unusual, aren't they? You come to a field and you have work to do, right, men? You got all kinds of work to do. You have set up your shade if you believe in that sort of stuff. Uh, you set up your tent, you set up your chairs, you, you do all this stuff, you get all this stuff out of the car, you, you come to the field and then you worship, right? As soon as worship is done, we take down all of our stuff and we quickly retreat to our AC, air conditioning in the car. That might not be the case today. It's pretty beautiful. Now, if your concerns during this time are for medical reasons or protecting someone that you're caring for, I totally get that. And what I'd encourage you to do is just take notes about what I'm just about ready to say. Take notes about when we come out of COVID so that you can do this. For the rest of us, might I just encourage you to look around, be friendly, and make others feel welcome when they come to Colonial Baptist Church. This is like a vision for Colonial Baptist Church, okay? Go straight to visitors, okay, from a social distance, of course. Go straight to visitors and ask them questions. Who knows what their needs are? Who knows what God is doing in their life? Who knows how God will use your obedience just to get involved in this one question or this one conversation? Ask them questions. Ask them things like, uh, have you got anywhere to go for lunch today? Now, if you're married, you better check with your wife on that one. Work it out beforehand. Have you got anywhere to go for lunch today? How's your, is this your wife? Is, is this your children? How are they doing? How are things going for you? What are your needs? Uh, who do you know in the body here? How did you hear about our church? What are you looking for? What do you need? And think of this way. Think, who can I introduce this guest to in the body that will be a blessing for them? I want you to strategize this week with your friends and with your spouse about how you can love people and guests in the body of Colonial Baptist Church. Think about these things. If it doesn't come naturally to you, perhaps write out some ways. Write out some questions that you can use to ask guests. Showing kindness to guests before, during, and after our gatherings is a great way to love brother and love stranger. Get it? Is that application out in right field? Am I, am I like just saying the stuff you're like, I, I don't see where it says love brother, love stranger. I see this. Here's another application. It's regarding the use of your home. That's right, regarding the use of your home. We live in a day when people retreat into their homes to get away. That's a cultural value in America. I used to have a neighbor that I never saw. He would come into our cul-de-sac. He would just drive into his driveway. He would open up the garage door. He would pull in, shut the garage door, and he never came out. It was very hard to ever meet him. He had very few guests as well. It seemed that, that, that the opportunities to get to know him were quite limited. But you see, I, I think that in America, this is a little bit of the American dream for hardworking professionals, right? You work so hard during the day, during the week, you just want to rest. And so you go back to your, your cave, right? It's like a cave and we hide out. 
But men and women, that's not what the Bible teaches. That's what our culture values. That's American. That's not Christian. And we must be counterculture in the way we use our homes. Our love and warm spirit should separate us or distinguish us from others in this world. So I ask you, how do you use your home? Do you know that there are many examples in the New Testament of believers who blessed others with the use of their homes? This is perhaps a a, a way that some of you might need to grow in your walk with the Lord. And so I ask you to just ask yourself some diagnostic questions or just ask yourself these questions, questions like this. How often before COVID did you have people over to your home? Or do you have brothers and strangers over? Of course, there are cautions you make with strangers. Sometimes you have other people that join you or whatever. I get that. And I want you to be careful as I, as I start picking around here because uh, it's easy to be quick to make excuses in the use of our home. Right, I've heard many excuses. Well, pastor, we live so far away from Colonial Baptist Church, I doubt anyone would come down to North Carolina or Great Bridge or Norfolk to come and see us. We live so far away, we can't, we can't open up our homes for others. Or our home is so small or dark, or dirty, or it's too large and uninviting. I've heard them all. But I believe that the way people use their homes is one of the most revealing things about their commitment to love brother and love stranger. There's a particular family in our body that I will not mention by name. I'll speak of them only in generalities, but I think of their commitment to have people into their home. For many years, they did not really have a big or exceptionally nice home, but that did not stop them from having people over, brothers and strangers. Now in a different home, they long to use their home to serve brother and stranger. How about you? How do you use your home? Perhaps COVID has limited it for a time, but how will you use your home? Here the author has one more thing to say about this though, and he does this in verse two. He gives a reason, a reason why You should be committed to love your brother, love stranger. A motive, and his motive is this, for some have entertained angels unawares. So we come to this part of the text, we come to this difficult passage, you know, this phrase, what is going on here? What is the author? How's he trying to reason or argue? And to answer that question, I want to just remind you of the original context. Here, I think the original context goes deeper or farther back than the book of Hebrews. Here, the author of Hebrews, I'm convinced, is appealing to a story that his readers, his Jewish readers would know. He's thinking of a story found in the first book of the Bible, Genesis chapters 18 and 19. In this story, Moses describes a narrative when he has three guests. There are three guests who come and visit Abraham. Abraham is underneath the shade of a tree. How fitting for us today. He's underneath the shade of a tree near his home. And these three guests arrive. So Abraham, he recognizes something unique is going on here. And so Abraham goes up to Sarah, his wife, and and asks her to arrange a spontaneous meal. Could you cook for these three guests? We We find out later as we continue to read that these were not mere men. They were angels, representatives of God. 
And so the author of Hebrews appeals to that example as a motivation for caring for any stranger that comes into our life. I think the overall point that he's making is that you really don't know who you're dealing with when you are demonstrating or showing hospitality. Now, the author stops short here of saying whether this will ever actually happen to us. But the point remains. You just never know who you might be showing kindness and love toward. And so the author here starts with the fact that we should love brothers and sisters and strangers. This is a fundamental quality in our personal ethics and commitments as followers of Jesus Christ. So as you assess yourself during this time, I ask you, are you committed to brotherly love and love of stranger? He continues in verse three, the second set of commands. The second set is is, uh, here a call to care for the afflicted with two imperatives. Look down in your Bible at verse three. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them and those who are mistreated since you also are in the body. The very first word in most English text is the word remember. And I think it speaks not only of memory recall, but of concern for someone. Remembering them in such a way that you demonstrate concern for them or you are concerned for them. In this text, there are two commands that build off of this word remember, two groups of people that we are to remember. The text says first, we're to remember those who are in prison, then secondly, those who are suffering affliction. When he talks about those in prison, I I think he specifically has in mind believers here in this text who are suffering persecution because of their commitments to Jesus Christ. I think it's noble for believers to demonstrate kindness toward incarcerated people as a whole, any any sort of incarcerated people. As a matter of fact, for years we have had people in this assembly who, who felt that that was their mission or calling through the Good News Prison Ministries. It starts with Roger DePriest, there perhaps were others there, but right now we've got a, a young man and family, Brett Moody, uh, in our assembly, who is ministering specifically to those who are incarcerated. I think that that's important. In this text, however, the author is addressing our kindness to believers who are being persecuted and imprisoned for their faith. And he says that we are to demonstrate concern for those in this way, as if we were ourselves the ones who were in prison. One like a guiding thought to help you care for believers who are suffering or in prison. You know, it might, it might not impact us very much right now in America, but in the big church across the world, there are believers who are in prison for the testimony of Jesus Christ. You know the way you should remember them? You should demonstrate concern and compassion for them like you were the one in prison. Like you were the one in prison. That's just not my opinion. That's God's word, God's revealed word, as though you were the one in prison. He adds to this, remember those who are afflicted those who are suffering bodily assault. And then he gives us the motive. Remember people like this, since we also are in the body. I think we come to a little bit of an odd expression here, knowing what this means, since we also are in the body. See that down there in your Bible? Verse three. 
It might mean that we're to care for their bodily ailments because we also have a body. Could mean that. Or I think more likely, it means that we should care for their wounds, their bodily afflictions uh, in their torture as though we were in their bodies. I don't think it's like this mystical thing he's imagining. He's just giving you a way to remember how to demonstrate true and genuine deep concern for other people who are afflicted because of the cause of Christ. They suffer, they have wounds, and you should care for them like it's your body to suffer those wounds. Regardless, the author calls us here to an intense identification with those who are suffering. Men and women, as I read this text this week, I, I was so... I was rebuked, actually, as a pastor. I was rebuked as a pastor regarding the care for brothers and sisters who are afflicted, who are suffering bodily ailments, perhaps because of Christ, perhaps not. And I pray that God gives me greater capacity as a pastor to care for others like it's my own body that is being afflicted. How about you? You're rebuked as well. Can you care for others in this way? This is the command. It's a command. Next, in verse four, we are to honor marriage. Honor marriage. The author gives two commands in verse four. Let's look at them. Look, you see where we're at. Verse four. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Although the two related imperatives in this verse come rather quickly, I want to slow down just a little bit and look at each one of them because I think mainstream values in our world are putting pressure on us as a church in this way. So the first statement here puts special focus on the word translated honor in the ESV because it comes first in the Greek clause. Okay, so he front loads it. Honor, marriage, by all. The word honor, it means to highly esteem or to respect. And he tells us that everyone in the church is to hold marriage in high esteem or give it respect. Now, I think there are many ways in our culture there are many ways in our world that marriage is not honored. Just a few of them came to my mind this week, and I say these things in love, but in seriousness. I think we do not honor marriage when we say that it can involve people of the same gender. The Bible's clear on this, folks. Yet our culture dis disregards what God says in the word. I think we dishonor marriage as well when we allow for divorce for no cause. Again, the Bible gives clear teaching and instruction about if and when a divorce is permissible, but our, our culture has cast that off. They don't care what God says. Yet I think there's another way that we do not honor marriage and that, this one, I think, is what was on the author's mind. It comes out in the second command. He says, do not defile the marriage bed. 
I think this statement does not really add much to the first as much as it's, it clarifies what's on the author's mind. There was a certain way he knew that married and single men and women were dishonoring marriage. They were defiling and corrupting the marriage bed. That is, they were cheating their spouses out of, or cheating spouses out of their marriage rights. This explains, uh, he then explains after this why that's never a good idea. You see his motive? He says, because or for God is the judge of all of those who engage in, and the two Greek words are porneia and moikeia, immorality and adultery. This, by the way, is the same God who one day will shake heaven and earth at the great removal. So he says, do not do this. And, and when he says immorality and adultery here, I think, I think he's just being comprehensive. I think these two words capture the role of any partner who cheats on another. They cover the dishonoring of the bed, whether it speaks of the role of a single man or woman in that practice, that's porneia, that's immorality, or the role of an unfaithful spouse, that's adultery. So men and women, I, I pray that you, you see the sanctity of marriage and the challenge here from the author of Hebrews. I, I pray, I pray often for our church, I pray for myself and our church that God would protect us from dishonoring marriage in these ways. If you have not honored marriage, if you've dishonored marriage, or you are in the practice now of dishonoring marriage, I appeal to you in the privacy of this moment, perhaps no one else even knows, my appeal to you is repent. Repent from that. Turn from that. Confess that to the Lord and know that Christ's blood on your behalf can cover the sin of those who blatantly disregard what Scripture says. Uh, listen, folks, I love 1 John 1, 9. It brings me much comfort in my walk with the Lord. You know this verse? And if you have this verse memorized, John says, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. All. Every one of us. God can cleanse you even from dishonoring your covenant commitment to your spouse. Or God can forgive you for your sinful intrusion into the covenant of another man and wife. And so I implore you to repent, seek God's forgiveness. So as followers of Jesus Christ, we, we learn some things in this text, the vision of the author of Hebrews. We should value the love of brother and love of stranger. We should care for afflicted brothers and sisters who are incarcerated or tortured. And we should not only possess a high view of marriage in our words, we should possess it in our action. He then closes in verses five and six. And I know I'm running just a bit late, but it's so beautiful out here. I just can't help it. So look with me in verses five and six. He says, keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you so that we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear what can man do to me. I think both of these commands have to do with being covetous. And so he says, do not be covetous. 
Again here, there are two related commands. The first one is we must not love money. Interestingly, I think this command comes from the same root word as love brother and love of stranger earlier. It was Philadelphia and Philozenia, and now it's Philargus. Okay, so you just see the fill, fill, fill. The mention of love here three times in this text, these first six verses, is very important. I think it holds all of this section together. As you consider the way these things are related to one another, isn't it true that care for money often prevents men and women of God from caring for their brothers and sisters or caring for strangers? I think many times loving brother and stranger means sharing money. I think some of you have cast off a love of money. That's your commitment as a follower of Jesus Christ. This to me was demonstrated clearly just last month when as a church we were able to in one month collect enough furnishings for two houses for our missionaries. So I'm casting off love of money. I'm giving them stuff. My stuff. Give them money. I'll help That's a great example for our assembly. Keep yourself free from the love of money. To this, the author adds a second command, and be content with what you have. God has given each one of us the things that are sufficient for our care, so we should be satisfied with God's provisions. After these commands, the author imagines a conversation between us and God. I'll just work through it quickly. When he gets to the motive part, he says, the way he talks about the motive is this way. He says, for God has said something, and he appeals to Deuteronomy 31 and verse 6. At the very end of Moses' teaching in the the Pentateuch, he explains to the people, uh, I'm not going to be able to go over the Jordan into the promised land with you. I'd love to be able to do that. I can't, but you should not fear because God will be with you. He says, be courageous, be strong, and do not fear. And then he, he gives this quote. For God will never leave you nor forsake you. That same quote is repeated later in the book of Joshua, in Joshua chapter 1, when Joshua perhaps is being challenged by God to lead the people. God says, as I was with Moses, I will be with you. And and later he says, he says, do not fear. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Because what the author of Hebrews is doing here is he's taking those two Old Testament texts. He says, you know what? God has said something about your provision in the past. God has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. And then he adds a second partner to this conversation. He says, so that we can say, you see that in your Bible? So that we can say something. And he quotes Psalm 118 verse 6. God has said, I will never leave you or forsake you so that you can confidently proclaim God is at my right side. I will not fear. It's not right to fear about a lack of financial security. It's not right. Because God has said he'll never leave us nor forsake us. We shouldn't fear what can man do to us. And so this text comes clearly in this last challenge. Uh, Do not love money, but be content because God will always provide for his children. And one of the things that was interesting to me as I walked through this study in preparation for this sermon is to see the twin topics that are covered in verses four through six. Verse four is about sex. Verses five and six 
is about money. You know, the twin topics of sex and money are found all throughout the scripture. We might not normally put those two together, but the Bible has a lot to say about them, and they're mentioned repeatedly, many times appearing together. I think this phenomenon started way back in the Ten Commandments, when you read the sixth and then the following commandment, the seventh, which talk or prohibit illicit abuses regarding these two subjects, immorality and money. Now, what's intriguing to me as I looked at the Bible this week was to see that although the Bible has a lot to say about both of them, it appears at least according to my count or estimate that the Bible has about three or four times more about loving money, covetousness, and stealing than it does immorality. You say, how in the world did you figure that out? I just looked at some key words, okay? It, it could be a little bit off. But let's say that I'm close it's intriguing to me. The Bible has more to say about the love of money than things related to morality. Yet I think we tend to emphasize immorality more in our preaching and in our thinking. Men and women, love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. I think we also tend to confront each other more when we have immorality issues or concerns in our minds. We see people stepping out of line when it comes to like immorality. We're like, okay, we got it. Someone, you, you know, you should really say something to them about it. That's how we do it often. Yet I think it's very rarely that we ever confront someone with love of money issues. And so as going through this text, as we close this week, I, I ask God, Lord, just help us see this. Help us see this in our own lives. This is something that's underemphasized in our preaching and teaching in our own minds. And so I developed just through prayer four diagnostic questions to ask yourself. They go very quickly. But just, would you ask yourself these questions? Number one, do you regularly think begrudgingly about how much it would cost to host others or to help others when they have need? Do you regularly think begrudgingly about the cost of it? Number two, do you normally think about those, uh, think about what those with wealth should do to make e things easier for you to obtain your goals? You see, I think you can love money even if you don't have any or much. And so do you find yourself regularly thinking about what someone with wealth should do to help you? I think that entitlement sort of mentality demonstrates perhaps a love of money. Does your pursuit, number three, does your pursuit of retirement mean that you don't normally consider hosting or helping other people out? I get it. Okay. I'm starting to get into like the aggressive phase of saving for retirement. Does your pursuit, so I'm preaching myself, does your pursuit of retirement mean that you don't normally consider hosting or helping others? Question number four. Have you failed to give back to God and to the church to meet in order to meet your own financial goals? I've heard this take many different shapes. And believe it or not, sometimes people actually tell me as a pastor, they, they like, I don't know, they, they're the, you know, the ones who think there's value in confessing it to the Father or something. <laughs> but people confess all these sorts of reasons to me. I've got a lot of school debt right now. I'll pay off the debt, and then I'll be in a better place to give to God. 
I think the problem with that type of thinking is you're not obeying what God says about giving. You're not obeying what God says about giving. And many times, then, you know, the and then, I'll, the then never comes because there'll be new financial goals and dreams and so on. Others will say, I'm saving for a new home and, and need a down payment, need moving expenses, so much related to this. I'll give to God once I get settled in the new home and this basic need is set up. Yet again, I think our priority must be to give God and that that priority is pushed back in our consciences, in our priorities in such cases. Men and women, covetousness, greed, and love of money are serious sins that, that reveal longings for things other than Jesus. I just remind you what the author of Hebrews has said here. God has promised he will never leave you or forsake you so that you can say, God is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? These are six verses that can change our church and impact the world. It's clear what God's vision for the church is. We must love brother and stranger, care for the afflicted in our body, honor marriage, and avoid a love of money. This is how the author of Hebrews imagines the Christian life. And I think the key to make this become more than a dream or a vision for us is found in one simple word. It's the word obey. Will you, through the power of the Holy Spirit of God, commit to obey these six verses and the vision or the dream that the author of Hebrews lays out for followers of Jesus Christ? Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for the privilege of working through this text of Scripture. I pray that as we close in song, you would be honored and glorified, Lord, in not only how we sing, but how we reflect upon these things. Lord, I pray that you would help us during this time of transition, isolation, and thinking to reimagine what our Christian commitment means. Perhaps some of us have done things wrong. Lord, help us in this fresh start to fulfill these commands by the power of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.